A few weeks ago, we began a series on John chapter 17. This is going to be a three-message series uh, on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Generally, we think of the model prayer. It could probably better be called when Jesus uh, gave what some people call the Our Father, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus was teaching in that moment uh, more than he was praying. If so, as they said, teach us to pray. He said, you pray like this. Uh, not necessarily with those words, although there's nothing wrong with repeating them. But when we think about the Lord's Prayer, we think about John 17. This was the night of his crucifixion. In just a few hours, he was going to be on the cross. What do you pray at such a pivotal moment? Tonight we're going to be looking in verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. In the first part of this glorious prayer of intercession, Jesus spoke of his special person and purpose and his supreme purpose Tonight, we're going to look at him praying for his own saved people. He talks about the time when he was in the world, and now he's going to be out of the world. It's really hard for us to know exactly all of the time period that Jesus was thinking about. Certainly, I think his mind was on the immediate. He was about to leave this world. In just a few hours, he was going to be dead. His body was going to be in the ground. His spirit had some business to do. And he did it. But it wasn't in this world kind of thing. And there are many who suggest that Jesus' attention was just on the moment, the immediate. They knew that the shepherd was going to be smitten and the sheep were going to be scattered. The next few hours were going to be very difficult on the apostles and all of his disciples. And so perhaps, uh, certainly, I think at least part of his attention was on that. It wouldn't be long then until he would be back. That's the great news about this story. Three days and three nights and Jesus would be back. And he would spend quite a bit more time with the disciples, about 40 days, in fact, a little over a month after his passion, after the death, burial, and resurrection. We know that because Passover was there, then Pentecost is 50 days later, and he told them to tarry in Jerusalem uh, for a little while. So a little over a month, uh, maybe five weeks or so, that Jesus uh, was with them and after his, his time, his death, burial, and resurrection. But then, of course, came the ascension and all that would go along with that. And now we live in those days. The time that he promised when he said, I'm, I'm returning to my Father, but I'm not going to leave you alone because the Comforter is going to come. You know him because he is with you now and he will be in you. And Jesus actually said, it's better for us 
And I've mentioned this to you many times. I can't help but mention it again. Uh, that, you know, if Jesus was here in his bodily presence, I don't know what everybody else in the world would do because I know Jesus would be at Faith Baptist. Amen. And uh, I, I, So it, it's better, he said, for you that I go away because when I go away, the comforter will come and he would specifically say, I will come to you. I will come to you. Uh, we know because of the truth of the Trinity that to have Jesus is to have the Holy Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit here is to have Jesus here. He is the another comforter that he promised. We have a comforter with the Father, but I'm, that's Jesus Christ the righteous. But we have another one who is with us, and that is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was anticipating that time. Certainly, certainly his mind was on the moment. And for the eternal I am, we know he always lives in the moment. So uh, we know that that was part of it. But we also know that his mind and his heart and his attention was projecting down even unto us. Because right here in this very prayer, he will pray not only for these men, but he will pray for all of those who would believe because of their word. That includes you, folks. And that includes me. So here Jesus is praying for his own saved people, his own special people. While Jesus was with them and, and in his bodily presence, he was responsible for the care and the preservation of his own. But now he is calling on the Father to take care of them. And in this moment then, uh, I'm reminded of a story about a uh, piano student, a uh, very, very advanced piano student. Uh, that heard one of the masters play. And he began to beseech him very earnestly, followed him around from concert to concert, begging, beseeching him, pleading with him to take him in as a student. This brilliant, gifted, young student pianist wanted to learn from the master. Finally, finally, the story goes, the master allowed him to come. He said, I'll teach you. So he showed up at his residence, his studio. The master pianist barely acknowledged the young student. Hardly spoke to him. Showed him where he was to sit. And then he went over and began to play. Practicing. The next day was a repeat of the first day. The next day, a repeat of the other days. And before long, the student understood this was what it was going to be. As a student, he didn't need, I mean, he was an accomplished pianist on his own. He didn't need him to teach him the dun 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 I mean, he, uh, what he was going to learn from was from listening and watching the master practice and play. How did he practice? How did he play? That was his lesson. See, Jesus had already taught the disciples the principles of prayer. He had already taught them that. Here in John chapter 17, they got to watch him practice it. So he was praying aloud and they heard. They heard him pray at this pivotal moment. How do you pray in such an important time, such a strategic time? He had taught them. But now he showed them. They learned 
as the master poured out his heart and soul before he went to Calvary and poured out his blood. The drama of all the ages is playing out before them. And now Jesus is facing it with prayer. If Jesus Christ, your Lord and mine, the God-man, God in the flesh, the Messiah, if Jesus Christ faced the big moments of his life in prayer, how much more do you and I need to pour out our hearts before God in prayer? He gives us then the why he prays for his people. And notice, and and I tried to emphasize that for you as I read the prayer uh, that he said, I do not pray for the world. His prayer was not for the world. Certainly the heart of Jesus was one with his father. So we know that his mind was on the world uh, when he went to the cross. For God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only begotten son. Certainly his mind and heart was on that. But he's not praying for the world. He's not interceding for the world. The reason for that is simple. His only prayer for the world is that they might be saved. If you're not saved, then Jesus Christ is only praying for you that you might be saved. It's one of the great theological questions we've kicked around. Of course, there is no answer. Is that does God hear the prayers of lost people? Certainly, he's under no obligation to. But I can assure you tonight, there is one prayer that he's going to hear from them. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me. He's going to hear that one. And before he hears that one, he's under no obligation to hear any other. I'm not praying, Jesus said, for the world. If he was praying for the world, his prayer for them was that they might be saved. He said, I'm praying for mine. The intercession of Jesus Christ is for his people. So what did he pray? Why did he pray? Well, he prayed because we're God's gift. And he looked at his people then as being God's gift to him. That's what he said in verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Couldn't help but think about all the things that are valuable to us just because who gave them to us. You go in my office uh, sometime, you will see that there are things all over my office. Why are they in there? Because... Somebody gave them to me. They're precious things that somebody made, somebody brought to me. I have many more at home. It's not that I keep all of them up here. I just, I just keep a smattering of them up here. And you know what it's like. There are all kinds of things that we have that may not be very valuable. I have an old single-barrel shotgun. Forgive me for this example, but it's what I thought about. I have an old single-barrel shotgun in the corner of... One of my closets hidden very carefully in my house. (laughs) Uh, It is worthless to anybody. It's probably an old Damascus steel barrel. You can't shoot. I wouldn't shoot the thing for nothing. No way. Stock is broken, wired together. Why do I have that? Because it belonged to my great-grandfather. I never knew him. He died before I was born. My dad grew up hunting with it when he was a boy. and He said he thinks to this day that's probably what's wrong with his shoulder because he said that thing kicked like a mule. I don't doubt it. Old high thing, low stock on it. I tell you, it was money couldn't buy it, folks. You understand what I'm saying? 
Money could not buy it. Has no value to anybody else. But it's valuable to me because of who gave it. I mention that to you tonight because of what Jesus Christ says in this passage. I'm praying for them because you gave them to me. (laughs) Isn't that precious? We are God's gift then to Jesus Christ. And they're precious to him because the Father gave them to him. Then he prays for his people also because they are still God's treasure. It's one of the unique things about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father can give things to God the Son and still keep them because they're still his. Isn't that interesting? What he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. All mine are yours and yours are mine. We're still God's treasure. He's praying for them then because God gave us to him, to Jesus. And so we're precious to him. But we're also precious because we still belong to God the Father. And we're God's precious treasure. He prays for us then because he is glorified in us. I am glorified in them. Uh, We might look at those bickering disciples and wonder how Jesus could possibly be glorified and all that. I mean, for all time for a church bus to break out, of of all time, for them to be arguing and carrying on among themselves. But we might wonder how Jesus could possibly be glorified. And then we spring ahead a few days and we see them scattered, see Simon Peter's denial, all the rest of them uh, running and hiding in fear. And yet, Jesus still said, I am glorified in them. Uh, Aren't you glad that God can get glory out of messed up, failure-prone people like us? We're still failing the Lord at key times, at important times when maybe he's counting on us, or important business. All of these men could have been disqualified from ever being a means by which he could be glorified. But you know the same is true of all of us. But he's not. God is glorified in us. I am glorified in them. The question is how? And a couple of quick things. Uh, First of all, we glorify him through the new birth. Uh, Every one of us is a walking, talking, living, breathing testament to the grace of God because we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we're seen. We were dead, but now we're alive. We're saved, born again. And because then of the new birth, because we have trusted him, we have believed on him, we have counted on him, we have committed ourselves unto him. And in that, then, we give glory unto him. Multitudes in this world have not. Multitudes in this world will never, never trust Jesus Christ. But everyone who does gives him glory. That's a great thing for you and I tonight to hang on to. Yes, we glorify him through the new birth, but we also glorify him by our testimony. All the devil loves to remind us of all of our sins and all of our failures and make us feel dirty and filthy and guilty. We say, well, I can't do anything. Listen, don't believe that that the devil's a liar. 
In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And uh, this is the Greek word poema. It's the word our word poem is from. And we are a carefully crafted, carefully designed tribute and testimony to God's creative power in Christ Jesus. Even as sin marred as we are, David would say long ago, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All we have to do is look in the mirror, we look at our fingers, think about our eyeball and the incredible complexity there. We are such a testament, a living testament to God's creative power. It's one of the things that all of this stuff going on in our culture right now, one of the reasons why it is such an awful thing is it's calling into question the creative work of God. Oh, God is a marvelous creator. But he hasn't stopped there because we are recreated in Christ Jesus. And so here we have this new creation power so that uh, God is working in us and changing us. And he calls us his workmanship. Like a poem. Like a song. Like a painting. Like the product of a master craftsman. Who has made something so special. That's how God looks at you and I in Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for God's grace tonight? My goodness. Oh, thank you God. So why is Jesus praying for us? Well, he is, he is praying for us because we are God's gift to him. We're praying because they're still God's treasure. And he prays for us because he says... That we give him glory and we give him glory through the new birth and through our testimony. That's the why. Why does he pray? Now for the what. What does he pray? Verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father... Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, and those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He begins then, what does he pray? He prays that the Father would keep the believers. The word keep has the idea of being the guardian. Uh, one who attentively watches over and provides for their supportive care. It is not so much the idea of keeping as in eternal security that is under question because that's already settled. That is settled the moment that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was that sense, and he brought up the son of perdition. Who was that? Well, that was Judas Iscariot. And I, of those that you've given me, I, none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Now, 
Uh, I've got some really interesting stuff for you at this point. This in this passage is what is known as a disjunctive participle. Doesn't that bless your heart tonight? Disjunctive participle. I, I don't talk about this kind of stuff very much. Uh, but sometimes it helps us a little bit. And this is one of those times. When he speaks of Judas, he could have, it could have literally been translated, of those that you gave me, I have lost none, but I lost the son of perdition. The language that he uses tells us that Judas was lost. He was never a part of this group. That the only one he lost was the son of perdition, but he was not a part of those who were given to him. Judas was lost. I heard a preacher tell a story years ago about a girl named Grace. Grace and her boyfriend decided to elope, but on the day that they were supposed to run off together, they had an argument. When he put his ladder up to her window that night and climbed up to get her, Grace pushed the ladder away, and he fell unceremoniously to the ground. And the moral of that story is, he fell from Grace, but he never got to Grace. Uh, yeah, that's a proverb, parable, there it is. Uh, the more, all right, uh, Judas Iscariot was lost, uh, but he was lost because he was always lost. He was never a part of this group. He was the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. He was chosen specifically to fulfill his role, and he did it. He did it. And so he prays that the Father would keep the believers. Their faith was going to be severely challenged. You remember when Jesus predicted Simon Peter's betrayal. He said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. And then he said this, but I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. Isn't that great? I prayed that your faith fail not. Guess what? His faith didn't fail. And I believe a big part of what Jesus is praying in that passage is that exact thing for us. That our faith not fail. Outside of that whole idea or concept of eternal security, remember that is set and settled. Nothing is going to change that. But there are people who allow their faith to be shipwrecked. There are people who claim, their testimony is, you know, I, I'm just not sure. I, I don't know. I don't know how to work all that out theologically. Part of me wants to say that they're just like Judas. The reason why their faith failed is because they didn't have faith at all. But I see a lot of them, I truly believe, they're actually saved people. They, they truly are. But their faith has been dealt such a blow that they've turned from it. Not sure how that all works out. But it is a threat. I tell you what, you folks here tonight, y'all have been believing in Jesus for a long time, hadn't you? Your faith hadn't failed. A big part then of what Jesus Christ is doing is working. What God, what he's praying for is working uh, so that our faith would not fail. But there was more to it. He said that they met, might be one, Father, as we are one. And he prays for the unity 
of his people. And once again, we're caused to, to remark on the fact that God's people hadn't always been very united. And in fact, if you look out over the wide spectrum, the wide spectrum of what we would call Christianity tonight, you're not going to see a whole lot of unity. There's a lot more disunity than there is unity. Jesus was praying for oneness. And that oneness would come if we would remember that we all believe the same Lord and it is our responsibility to do what He says, to follow His Word. We'll talk about that in a moment. But all the splintering and factoring and, and, and dividing up, it's all come because people have substituted, thus saith the mind of man instead of thus saith the Lord God. They've gone their own way. And because of that, there's just multitudes, such an incredible diversity of belief and opinion to be found among those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. It's sad. It's sad. <laughs> but I can tell you one thing. Jesus went on the cross and create out on the cross. And when he died there, he died to create the means by which this oneness could be accomplished. Because there is one place where we are one. All true believers are one in one place. And that is in Christ Jesus. And one day we are all going to experience and enjoy that eternal unity of being with him. He is going to change us. We talked about that this morning. And that doesn't include just our body, but it includes our mind. It's hard for you to imagine right now, but you know some folks that Jesus Christ is actually going to change their mind when they get, he gets them to heaven. They're going to see the truth. <laughs> One of those guys might be Richard Hamlin. <laughs> I might have a couple of ideas around mine that uh, he has to work on a little bit. Uh, not that I'm hard-headed or anything. and I'm not. I'm, I'm not. Uh, yes, I am too. I'll admit it. The oneness that Jesus prayed for may not be a practical thing that we see in this world, but it is a spiritual thing that is absolutely true in the presence of God so that all those who are saved by the same blood are one day going to kneel before the same Savior in the same place. And we will be one. Jesus said it. There'll be one fold, he said. Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Them also must I bring, he said. And there'll be what? One fold and one shepherd. He prays in uh, for uh, that, that God would keep us and that he would keep us in unity he prays then for our joy, verse 13. But now I come to you, uh, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Isn't it interesting that Jesus went to the cross with joy? <laughs> He's talking about it. This is my joy. He wanted his joy to be their joy. And as they saw him at this moment in time praying and, and approaching this joyfully, they would learn how to face the persecution that they would face in exactly the same way. Spring forward a little ways and you're going to see the apostles going away rejoicing after they were beaten. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Yeah. 
He prays then for our joy. He prays for us to be established by his word. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Notice the transformation that Jesus said happens to us because we know his word. Because we have his word. And because of that, we're not at home in this world anymore just like Jesus was not at home in this world. His word and the very presence of his word in you and in me is changing us because we adhere to him. Uh, I read an article, a glowing, flowering article in a very liberal publication, liberal news publication a few weeks ago about a preacher. They just couldn't say enough good stuff about this guy. Such a wonderful, wonderful preacher. Such a wonderful Christian. I mean, they just went on and on about how great he was. It won't surprise you to learn that this man had denied that the Bible is the Word of God. That he was pro-everything then that everybody in the world is, is, is so pro of. I mean, he was the darling of the media. Why? Because he'd abandoned the truth of Scripture. I could be the darling of the media. I'd rather be pleasing to God. How about you? <laughs> All we have to do is adhere to the Word. If we do that, then the world's going to hate us just like it hated Jesus. But it will establish us. It changes us. Jesus has given us His Word. And He prays that we'd be established by it. Lastly then, what he prays for, he prays for our protection from the evil one. In this sense, he says almost exactly the same thing. He uses almost exactly the same words as he did in the model prayer when he said, uh, deliver us from evil. And the conjunction of the word evil could be either evil as in sins or evil things, or it could be the evil one. It could be the one. Both of them are applicable. Jesus would pray that we'd be delivered from evil things. And yes, there's been a lot of times we've been tempted. But you know, there's a lot of things that don't tempt you and a lot of things that don't tempt me. A lot of things maybe that could have happened that God intervened. We have no idea all the ways that God protects us from evil and keeps us from evil. We certainly know at least to have a glimpse of all the ways that he protects us from the evil one. Don't you know the evil one would wipe us all out if he could? Of course he would. You know it. And so he's constantly protecting us from the evil one. He protects us through the work of the Holy Spirit, through his leadership, through his providence. Times that God delivers us simply because we are in his guardianship. So what does Jesus pray for? He prays for our protection from the evil one. He prays that we'd be established by the word. He prays that we would face our even difficult times with joy as he did. He prays that we'd be kept then by the Father and kept in unity one with another. And so tonight we can remember and reflect on the fact that though we may not be appreciated and though we might not be liked, we are precious to God. <laughs> precious to God. When we're suffering and under the persecution that so often follows our commitment to Christ or that so often comes to us just as a product of life, it's easy to think that God has abandoned us or forgotten us, and yet Jesus went joyfully into his sufferings 
leaving us an example to follow. Jesus wasn't suffering because he had done something wrong. Jesus was suffering because he had done exactly what he was supposed to do. And you know what? You and I are going to have that same cross to bear in the world in which we live. We may suffer, not because we did wrong, but because we stayed true to the word. And when we do, we need to face it joyfully, just like Jesus did. Remember what he taught us in the Beatitudes? Blessed are you when men shall revile you. Blessed are you when they shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Next word, rejoice. (laughs) Next expression, and be exceedingly glad. (laughs) That's uh, emphasis. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. When what happens? When people revile you, when they talk bad about you, when they're mean to you for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. Hmm. That's what Jesus is praying for tonight. These prayers of Jesus Christ reach across all these centuries so that he's praying for you and he's praying for me. Maybe you're one of those tonight that he's praying for that you'd be saved. God tells us that it is his will that all men should be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We saw it this morning. I'm willing, Jesus said, be thou clean. Why don't you call on him tonight? Right where you are, you can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Knowing that you're a sinner, you call on him, Jesus, I know you died for me. I want to believe on you and trust you, commit myself to you, and my eternal destiny to you, because you promised if I believed on you, you'd forgive me and be my Savior. Would you pray to Jesus Christ, call on him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, and you'll be saved. What do I do next? Tell somebody. (laughs) Tell your wife. Tell your husband. Tell your mom. Tell your dad. Tell your friend. Call me and tell me. Tell somebody. Make an appointment. Follow him in baptism. Unite with the church. Get active. Get in the word. You need it. If in any area of these things tonight is something that you need to do, this is your time. Let's stand together.